Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK. The capital B, capital T, and a capital UK, or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. In today's show, we'll be talking about something that, until the 19th century, was a popular day out. One of the great events in the early years of Victoria's reign was a public hanging. It was free. And in 1849, there were a total of 23 hangings in the UK. While figures vary dramatically, there is no reason really to doubt that the number of spectators that watched might range from anywhere between 20,000 up to 100,000. The fascination with executions extended well beyond those able or willing to attend the actual hanging Sellers of street literature worked their way up and down the countryside, selling papers and pamphlets, usually prepared well in advance, claiming to contain either the written or spoken words of the condemned man or woman. At five o'clock in the morning on March 3rd, 1849, Mrs Fry was awakened by screams which seemed to come from the bedroom of the house next door in Trenchard Street, Bristol. Mrs Ham, her lodger, was also disturbed by the commotion. The two women agreed the cries were coming from the first floor front room, where their neighbour, Miss Elizabeth Jeffries, a woman in her sixties, slept. Mrs Fry instructed Mrs Ham to bang on the wall with a stick, and when she did so, the noises ceased, and the two women were able to resume their uninterrupted sleep. Until seven o'clock, when there came a knock at the door, a young girl stood on the step and introduced herself as Miss Jeffrey's servant. She said she had been sent round to apologise for the earlier disturbance. A cat had jumped on Miss Jeffrey's bed, terrifying her and causing her to scream, the girl explained. You must have thought we were killing each other, she smiled. This was the first time the neighbours had met Sarah Harriet Thomas, the latest in a long line of servants employed by the woman, so disagreeable by nature that even her own brother with whom she once shared a house, never visited her. She did have one friend, however, and that was Mrs Susan Miller. Mrs Miller had called on her the previous afternoon, a Friday, and had promised to visit again on the Saturday. And when she duly arrived at 6 Trenchard Street, she found the house closed up and no amount of banging at the door could get a response. Earlier in the morning, though, a little before lunchtime, 
some form of activity had been witnessed at number six. George Webb, a porter who lived across the street, watched a young woman whose description tallied with that of 19-year-old Sarah and a man removing objects from the house. The two of them walked off in the direction of St Michael's Hill. A bundle was deposited at a confectioner's in Magdalen Lane to be called for later. And between half past three and four o'clock that afternoon, Sarah turned up at her parents' home in Horfield. It appears that George and Anne Thomas asked no questions about her arrival out of the blue, and they didn't even ask about all the luggage that she asked them to bring in. That evening, Sarah returned to Bristol and met a cab driver she knew, a Mr Thomas Rowley. She persuaded him to collect a bundle she had left at a nearby confectionery shop, and then she returned home, arriving at half past nine. Although she spent the whole of the following day at her parents' home, it would appear that they still didn't ask her about all the possessions she had brought with her, which included jewellery, silverware and money. A story the police found hard to swallow when they arrested Sarah. So, they arrested her mother at the same time. This week's word of the week is half-pace. Now, if like me, you thought it was a speed, like walking at half-pace, then like me, you would be wrong. In fact, it's a landing, and not just any landing. It refers to that small landing at the top of a flight of stairs where you have to turn around and take another flight of stairs to get to where you're going. After turning up unexpected at her parents' house, Sarah went back to Bristol on the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday evenings. But her mother said she always returned early and with no one from this house, which is not exactly the same as saying she came home alone. It's obvious that Sarah had proved troublesome to her parents in the past. She had left several positions abruptly and, in each case, money and certain objects had disappeared with her. On Wednesday the 7th of March, 61-year-old Elizabeth Jeffreys' body was found when Miss Jeffreys' brother, Henry Jeffreys, a retired surgeon who was living in Bristol, applied to a magistrate for advice and aid, and with the assistance of the police, obtained an entrance into the house. When they went upstairs, Mr Jeffreys and Police Sergeant Michael Corr found her corpse lying on the bed with seven wounds on the head, a pool of blood on the floor and a stone on the hob, caked with blood and grey hairs, with which the wounds had been inflicted. Everything in the room in a state of confusion and disorder, and the whole house ransacked, and a quantity of money, jewellery and dresses missing. It was later discovered that the stone was the one she used to prop open the kitchen door. When Henry Jeffreys described the discovery in court, he said... When I went to the house on Wednesday, I found my sister lying partially in and partially out of bed. Her face was down and embedded in the pillow. She was lying as if she had been rolling out of bed. There was a nightcap on her head, which was bloody. The pillow was bloody. The bedclothes were spotted blood. There was a chair by the bedside, as close as it could be placed. On the cover of the chair, there was a pool of blood. The cover was of linen, but did not allow the blood to exude through it, and the blood had trickled down and run in a stream by the wall and formed another pool in the corner of the room. The head was about six inches from the chair. 
when I looked about the room, I immediately noticed several things missing. Police Sergeant Corps found that three drawers were missing out of a child's chest of drawers. The body of Miss Jeffrey's dog was discovered later in the backyard toilet. At about 2am, Sergeant Corps took three constables and went to Hallfield to search for the missing servant girl, who was found crouched in the coal hole under the stairs of her parents' cottage, wearing only her nightdress, cap and slippers. The little dwelling was combed immediately, even to the extent of getting her father out of his sickbed. The booty soon came to light. Bracelets, brooches, a ring, a gold chain, old coins, principally half-francs, and part of a silver buckle were immediately discovered. Most incriminating of all was a spoon and sugar tongs, engraved with the initials E.J. PC William Summers asked Sarah to go upstairs so that her bedroom could be searched, but she refused. It was then that a purse was discovered in her bed, containing 27 sovereigns, four half-sovereigns, 15 shillings and four pence in coppers. Sarah was asked, in front of her mother, if the purse was hers. Her mother replied, it is hers. I will tell no more lies for her. In the cubby hole where Sarah had been hiding, the police found more items belonging to Miss Jeffries, including a small money box, a watch and a chain, as well as some food. Sarah and her mother were arrested and taken to the police station so that a more thorough search could be made of the house. When the police returned, they found that Sarah's much younger brother and sister had been given bracelets, later identified as being the property of Miss Jeffries. When Sarah was being questioned at the police station, police inspector Alfred Bell asked her when she had left her mistress and who had carried her luggage. Sarah replied that it was on Friday and she had employed an Irishman, Thomas Rowley, and given him six shillings to help her. When questioned later, Thomas would say that he'd been going up St Michael's Hill at 8.30pm on the 3rd of March. When Sarah had stopped him and asked if he could take her to Horfield, he agreed and he took her and her luggage, dropping them off at her parents' garden gate. Sarah's mother, Anne, recalled her daughter had arrived at about 4am on the Saturday and bringing some things with her. Sarah then went out again that evening saying she was going to her mistress's, as if she had left some things there. The next morning she opened some of the boxes and showed some clothes, saying that the mistress had given them to her. She had also said that she was not a very good mistress, and that's why Sarah had left. During interrogation, Anne the mother said that when the police arrived at their door, Sarah had told her to tell the police that she was not there. And whilst Anne was downstairs talking to the police, Sarah, who had been sleeping in the same room as her parents, quickly got out of bed and rushed to her hiding place in the coal hole. And that was when the inspector charged her with murder, to which Sarah replied, You may take me. It was not I that did it. Initially, Sarah tried to implicate Miss Jeffrey's brother, but, finding herself skating on thin ice, she produced a tale of a former servant who turned up on that Saturday morning. Sarah alleged she saw the girl as she closed the bedroom shutters. On Friday, the 9th of March, PC William Climot heard the prisoner wailing in her cell. 
and when he asked what was wrong, she told him this tale. On Saturday morning, I was taking the shutters from the window between six and seven o'clock, and a girl came down and told me that she had come several times for a character from the old woman, and she would not give her one. And to my surprise, she said she would go upstairs and kill the old woman. And so she goes upstairs and kills the old woman with a stone, gets the keys, opens the cupboard, pulls out a small box full of sovereigns and gave me part of it and kept the rest for herself. Told me she would give me all the silver spoons and a plate if I did not speak of it, for it would be a long time before it could be found out, for there were not that many callers that came to the house. And so we ransacked the house and came downstairs, put on a frying pan and made pancakes and had tea, and the stone that she killed the old woman with lay on the hob. Book of the Week The Book of the Week is The Haunting of Maddie Clare by Simone St. James. In the book, 25-year-old Sarah Piper gets a call from the temporary agency that she works for. A male writer is requesting an assistant, and he is asking for a female. Sarah is to meet him at a coffee house in Soho, London. And this starts off their adventures in trying to find out all about the ghost of Maddie Clare and what she wants. This is ghost hunting in the 1920s, and it's both intimately scary and sad at the same time, and it's perfect for the Halloween season. As always, I'd love to hear from you, and you can find me very easily on Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK, or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. And that is exactly what Paul from Manchester did after listening to the show live on bradleystokeradio.com. In his message, he says he's been listening for a couple of weeks now and he's impressed with how much detail has gone into each episode. Thank you, Paul. That's the kind of message that lets you know that you're on the right track and makes it all worthwhile. And now, let us continue with our story. After Sarah's initial confession, she said the girl's name was Maria Lewis or Williams. She wasn't entirely sure which. And this Maria had been a servant of Miss Jeffreys for two months before Sarah had worked there. She went on to describe her as having a stone in her hand with her and going upstairs with it. Of course, attempts were made to trace this elusive Maria. Susan Miller, a charwoman, had vague recollections of a girl whom Miss Jeffreys had employed in the not-too-distant past, but thought her name was Rebecca. Agencies that had supplied domestic staff to Miss Jeffreys were unable to help, and a blank was drawn. Susan Miller also stated that Miss Jeffreys was very violent towards her servants. The last servant before Sarah who could be positively identified was Lucy Chad, a 16-year-old from Bath. Both she and her mother were cross-examined carefully. It turns out that after recovering from an illness, Lucy had gone to Bristol to find herself work while staying with her aunt, Mrs Lewis, in Avon Street. She was engaged by Miss Jeffreys and started to work at the Trenchard Street House on the Thursday before Christmas. Lucy remained there five weeks until January the 24th, when her health began to fail again, as a consequence, she said, of the somewhat harsh treatment she received 
at Miss Jeffreys' hands. Lucy said that she left because Miss Jeffreys would never allow a fire in the kitchen, where she slept with the dog. Miss Jeffreys would also lock up and keep the keys with her, and she also threatened to beat her. Sarah took up her position on February the 5th, so this leaves two weeks unaccounted for. Was the mysterious Rebecca or Maria employed during this fortnight? During the court case, Mr Whitmore opened the case for the prosecution and detailed the following facts. The deceased was a lady far advanced in life of considerable wealth, but unfortunately of a very infirm and violent character. She had consequently little or no intercourse with her own relatives and was seldom visited or even seen by her neighbours. She lived almost entirely alone, sometimes but not always having a female servant. At those times, the duties of the house were performed by a woman of the name of Miller, who seemed to have seen most of her. The last time Mrs Miller saw her was on Friday the 2nd of March, when she made an appointment to come the next day. She did come, but found the shutters closed, and on knocking got no answer, and thereupon concluded that Miss Jeffreys had gone out of town for some time. The house remained in that state till the Wednesday following, when Miss Jeffreys' brother, a surgeon who was retired from practice and was living at Bristol, applied to a magistrate for advice and aid, and, with the assistance of the police, obtained an entrance into the house, and on going up found her corpse lying on the bed, with several wounds on the head, a pool of blood on the floor, and a stone on the hob marked with blood and grey hairs, with which the wounds had been inflicted. Everything in the room in a state of confusion and disorder, and the whole house ransacked, and a quantity of money, jewellery, and dresses missing. It's at this point that a totally new story came to light, one told by young Mary Sullivan, a nine-year-old girl who led her blind uncle, John Collins, around the pubs by night where he played the fiddle to eke out his three shillings a week parish relief money. This girl lived with her uncle at the back of the ship in Steep Street and knew Sarah quite well, testifying that the servant had been keeping company with a rifleman for at least a month before the murder. Mary informed the court that on the fateful Saturday she was downstairs in the Flitch of Bacon, an inn in Ho Street, with her uncle. Also present was a young man called Matthew Lyon and two riflemen, one of whom was Sarah's beau. Mary claimed the group were plotting the murder of Miss Jeffreys. Around midnight, after a few drinks, Matthew and one of the other men climbed over the wall which separated the hostelry from the yard of 6 Trenchard Street. Unseen by the men, Mary and her uncle followed through a doorway in the wall and crept up to the house, where Mary witnessed Lyon strike Miss Jeffreys on the forehead while the other men hit her with the side of the sword. Lyon then killed the dog, took it downstairs to the yard and flung it away. Mary's account was unreliable. It would appear ridiculous that the men climbed over a 20-foot-high wall when they could have simply passed through the doorway, as Mary and her uncle did. She was also very vague about the geography of the house. But why would she tell such a tale? Was she merely a sensation seeker? With Lucy Chad's evidence, 
Sarah's story regarding the embittered ex-servant seems highly unlikely. In Lucy's description of life in the Jeffreys household, she said that her mistress slept with the house keys in her bedroom and that all doors and shutters were carefully secured each night. Miss Jeffreys herself was the one to open up in the mornings. How, then, was Sarah able to admit the ex-employee? The house keys themselves were discovered on the Wednesday after the murder. They were spotted in a groove on a window ledge at the flitch of bacon when William Vickery, who was resident there, was putting up the shutters. Had they been there since the day of the slaying, and if so, why had he not noticed them before? The keys were handed to Mary Price, the landlord's wife, who had, in turn, passed them to the police. She denied knowing Mary Sullivan, but had heard she was not quite in her senses. But she added, they had such a bad lot, you can't believe them. She did not continue any further. During the initial hearing, Sarah had not endeared herself to the judge and jury by behaving with levity, but by the time she was tried, the dire consequences became very real to her. When the judge pronounced her guilty and sentenced her to death, she broke down completely and she was dragged screaming to the gallows. It is claimed that Sarah made a confession to Mr J Gardner, the governor of the jail, in the presence of one female officer, saying... Two days before the murder was committed, Miss Jeffries called me up into her room and attempted to strike me. She also locked me in the kitchen during the whole of the night. At five o'clock in the morning, she unbolted the door and told me to make a fire in her room. I thought then to have struck her, but I did not contemplate murdering her until six o'clock in the morning. When I got up, went downstairs and returned with the stone, which, while Miss Jeffries was asleep, I struck her on the head with three times. Between the second and third blow, she made some kind of noise, and the last words I heard her say were, Christ God! I then dressed myself, robbed the house, flung the dog down the privy, locked up the house and went home. I took away 30 sovereigns and a quantity of silver things, all of which the police have since found. The keys to the house I flung away but I believe they were afterwards found by a man who was putting up some shutters. I committed the murder and robbed the house with my own hands and no person else had anything whatever to do with it. Neither did I mention having done so to any person. I regret exceedingly having committed so horrid a crime and I pray to Almighty God for forgiveness. I never should have committed so dreadful a crime. If only Miss Jeffrey's conduct had been less provoking... During the week before the execution, Sarah was very sullen and refused to see her family but eventually relented and on the Thursday saw her mother and sisters in a goodbye interview. Her sisters cried bitterly but her mother seemed oblivious to the fate that awaited her daughter. Anne had brought with her some plum cakes that she had purchased the day before in Stokescroft. She told the seller that she was the mother of Sarah Thomas who was going to be hung and the cakes were for her. During her last meeting with her daughter, Anne eagerly demanded whether she was to have Sarah's clothes. The sisters were heard to exclaim that they would definitely be attending the hanging. Reverend H. Richards of Sarah's Parish of Horfield raised an impressive petition to save Sarah, suggesting that she was too simple to hang. Despite that, the date was set for Friday... April the 20th, 1849. Early on the Thursday morning, the barricades were put up on each side of the jail 
for a distance of several hundred yards to keep the general public at an appropriate distance. Sarah's grave was dug in the grounds of the jail. Her coffin bearing her name was brought onto the premises to await its cargo and various carpenters and workmen were busy erecting the scaffold. And early on that Friday morning, people started to arrive and claim the best places to see the proceedings. And by 9am, there were more than 10,000 people present. And by the time of the execution, the figure had risen to nearly 30,000. Imagine the scene. It was like a country fair. Cries of lemonade and ginger beer or a cigar and a light were heard. Young boys wearing placards were heard crying out that they were selling penny publications of Sarah's confession and others were offering other publications about the murder. At ten minutes before 10am, the bell of St Paul's Church in Bedminster started tolling the funeral knell and within a few minutes, the mournful procession was seen to emerge from the narrow gateway upon the jail the last being Sarah. Sarah's last moments were fearful for everyone. Six prison officers had to drag her screaming to the drop and Smith, the assistant for Caulcraft, because he didn't have the stomach for it, carried the screaming young woman up the ladder slung over his shoulder. So great and moving was the awful scene that even the prison governor was so overcome he fainted. Someone, save me, I beg of you, help! Corcroft, with disgusting but scientific quickness, tied Sarah's clothes above her knees, fixed the rope to her throat, placed a cap on her head and covered her face. Then he threw the rope over the beam, made a knot, and almost before the men who held her up could even move from the scaffold, he withdrew the bolt. During all that, Sarah was heard to call out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I hope neither my mother or any of my family are here. Lord, have mercy on my soul. During her heart-wrenching screams, the drop fell and she struggled for a minute and then ceased to exist. Sarah was the last person to be publicly hanged in the city and a great many of the crowd felt repulsed by what they had seen, and many carried the memory of that grisly day for years afterwards. It's worth noting that up to 1888, the hangman supplied his own rope and pinioning straps, and after the execution, was also allowed to take the prisoner's clothes and retain the rope. In notorious murder cases, these items could be sold for a considerable sum to Madame Tussauds waxworks or to morbid members of the public. A contemporary crime reporter, E. Austin, who attended the execution, expressed the view that the confession that was finally forced out of her was made for and not by her. He wrote in his anecdotage several years after the event, How much of it she understood is a matter on which I will not venture to speculate. He also spoke with contempt of her friends who were in a great state of excitement on the morning of the hanging, inquiring of their neighbours if they were going to see our Sal hung. He tells how, when her lifeless body was swinging in the April breeze, jests were bandied about, and after waiting to see the corpse cut down, the crowd dispersed and the harvest of the taverns in the neighbourhood 
commenced. Sarah was buried within the grounds of the jail, part of which is still standing. The actual gateway on which she was hanged, along with many others. And if you walk past it, it's, it's still a very sobering sight. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's tale and agree with me that it was brought to life by the vocal talents of Marcus KP, Steve Shepherd, and especially Chloe Locke, who played Sarah. Back in the day facts. Did you know, on the 17th of October in 1879, nearly a thousand people attended a lecture in Bristol given by Alexander Graham Bell to explain his invention of the telephone. On the 18th of October in 1867, the USA bought Alaska from Russia. Also on the 18th of October, the British Broadcasting Company, or BBC, was established. It was dissolved in 1926 and reconstituted under Royal Charter in 1927 as the British Broadcasting Corporation. On the 23rd of October in 1915, more than 25,000 women marched up Fifth Avenue in New York City, demanding the right to vote. It was the largest parade ever organised for women's suffrage. Also on the 23rd of October in 1915, local lad W.G. Grace, who was an English cricketer and doctor from Downend in Bristol, passed away. On the 24th of October, English musician with the Rolling Stones Bill Wyman was born in 1936. And in 1991, on the 24th of October, US scriptwriter, producer and director Gene Roddenberry passed away. Just in case you didn't get it by the music, Eugene Wesley Roddenberry was the creator of the original Star Trek television series, as well as its first spin-off, The Next Generation. Now, there's some interesting stories about Gene Roddenberry. In 1992, some of his ashes were flown into space and returned to Earth on the space shuttle Columbia. And on April 21st in 1997 a Celestis spacecraft with seven grams of the cremated remains of Roddenberry, along with those of 23 other people, was launched into Earth's orbit aboard a Pegasus XL rocket from a site near the Canary Islands. On May 20th, 2002, the spacecraft's orbit deteriorated and it disintegrated in the atmosphere. Another flight launched more of his ashes into deep space, along with those of Barrett, his wife, who died in 2008, was initially planned to take place in 2009 and unlike previous flights the intention was that this flight would not return to earth to burn up in the atmosphere the project was cancelled in 2014 you have been listening to me alice on the backtracker history show Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. 
or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>